A reading from the Revelation to John. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, to repay according to everyone's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is I, Jesus, who sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. The one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you pray? Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you for 
the waters of baptism that remind us that your spirit is upon us and that you love us and that we are engaged to be yours. And we thank you for your holy word. uh, And we pray that you would give us your spirit today and that you would stir our hearts and our minds to know you and to love you and to desire you. So would you use this time together uh, to bless us, to grow us up, and to make us more like Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. I'm going to just move this here, a little cattywampus from the baptismal liturgy. So today's Trinity Sunday, um, and we're finishing up our seven-week series on the Apostles' Creed, which, as we have seen throughout, is a very Trinitarian-shaped creed, right? It begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then goes on to, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, and then finally into this concluding section that begins with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And what I love about the timing of all this, of concluding our series today on Trinity Sunday, is that today is the only feast day we celebrate uh, in, the, in the liturgical year that commemorates a doctrine instead of an event. Uh, and what we've been considering all the way through this series on the Apostles' Creed is how our doctrine, our theology, is more like a map than a destination. And so today, as we celebrate with the church around the world that God has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, and as we celebrate how that spirit of truth has led the church into discerning the truth, that God is both one in essence and three in person, it's important that we celebrate our doctrine of the Trinity as a map that leads us into deeper communion with God, not as a destination where we have arrived. That's something we've been talking about all through this series on the creed. Our theology is like a map. Its purpose is to point beyond itself to God, who is the destination and the adventure, the real thing, right? The purpose of our theology is to lead us deeper into a life of knowing God and communing with him. And the doctrine of the Trinity is no different. It's a, it's a doctrine that leads us in our seeking the Lord. So one of my favorite things I get to participate in these days is the City Church Seekers Group that meets over in in the Fairmount neighborhood. And we call it the Seekers Group, not just because we hope that people who who like that label and would identify themselves as seekers would come and participate, but we call it that because seeking is actually what we intend to do together as a group. The group exists in order to be a safe place to ask those questions that we so often consider unsafe to ask, right? We want it to be a place where we can honestly bring our questions and our curiosities and our doubts into a group of friends and fellow seekers who, though we may be coming from a variety of backgrounds and beliefs, what we have in common is our desire to seek the truth about God, about ourselves, about the world, and I think as we've been going along, what we're finding is that, that we who are participating in the group are finding one another to be helpful and enjoyable companions on that journey of seeking. So just a quick aside, before I go any further, I think this is worth mentioning just as I say that, is that I, you know, I really hope, and I hope we all hope, that all of our groups at City Church would be seekers groups. 
right? Whether we're talking about our children's classes or our youth ministry or our college fellowship groups or our community groups or even on up into the 55 and up group, hopefully what we're cultivating here together at City Church is a life of humble faith and openness to God in which we are genuinely seeking to know God and to follow Jesus and to share in the life of the Spirit. Well, at our Seekers group uh, meeting a couple weeks ago, someone raised this question um, about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity uh, and how it is that we can believe that God is both three and one at the same time. And as one member of the group reported hearing from a colleague, he said, you know, it just seems that Christians are just bad at math. Three doesn't equal one, and everyone seems to know that except us. And of course, we should recognize that such an objection isn't crazy, right? We have to recognize that. If we, but if we were saying that the doctrine of the Trinity is our final destination, that definitive portrait of God that so captures his likeness that we can all from now on simply fix our gaze upon it rather than upon him, as if it, the doctrine, were the real thing, then I think such an objection would really hold water, but that's not what the doctrine of the Trinity is. It's not the doctrine we celebrate on this feast day today. The doctrine of the Trinity, like the creed, is a map that points beyond itself to the God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, yet also as a God who is one and not many. And the purpose of the doctrine has always been to aid us in our worship and to guide us in our communion with the living God. That's what the early church uh, ancestors in the faith were after when they worked out this Trinitarian formula. They were, they were seeking a statement that would guide us in our worship. We are to worship the Father because he is God. We are to worship the Son because he is also God, though he is not the Father. And we are to worship the Spirit because he is God too, though he is neither the Father nor the Son. Yet even as we say these things, we confess that we do not worship three gods. We worship one, living and true God who has revealed himself as one. We know three doesn't equal one. That's actually the point. God isn't three and one in the same way. He's three in one way that the early church fathers called person, and he's one in another way that the early church fathers called essence or being. But at the end of the day, what, they come down, what, what they've come up with, what they've given us, is this description of God as trinity, a quality that is unique to him, and that's a mystery. We don't fully understand how it holds together, and none of the church fathers who developed it claimed to fully understand the mystery of how God is one in essence and three in person. They just realized that God had revealed himself as he had revealed himself. And their job was to speak about it as best they could so that the map that they would draw out and give to the church to follow would be one that would actually lead us toward and not away from the true and living God. Now, I've used this example before, so pardon me if it's a tired illustration, but the doctrine of the Trinity reminds me of Edwin Abbott's book, uh, Flatland. I don't know if you've read that book. I read it in high school and remember having sort of this aha moment when I read it that looking back was probably a really significant one in leading me out of my head 
uh, and into an openness of living in a world uh, where transcendence is a real part of our human experience. But the book Flatland is one in which all the characters in the book are these two-dimensional shapes who live in a two-dimensional world. And the, the main character is named A-square. And uh, there's this one point where A-square encounters A-sphere, who's a three-dimensional character living in a three-dimensional world. And so as sphere comes into contact with square, basically what happens is you get square's articulation of what it is that sphere is like. And being a two-dimensional creature, he can't experience sphere in three dimensions, and so he can only describe him as a 2D cross-section, right? And so when you hear square begin to speak about sphere, he describes him as a circle that gets like bigger and bigger and bigger and then smaller and smaller and smaller, and then goes away. Because that's how a two-dimensional being would experience a sphere passing through its world. I think as we reflect on what we're doing when we speak about God, we should recognize that we're doing something like that. We are finite creatures speaking about the infinite. We're fallen creatures speaking about one who is holy. And we are inherently limited. Which is not to say that our theology is therefore nonsense. Of course not. God is faithful and kind to reveal himself to us right where we are. He came to be one of us in Jesus. And he has put his spirit in us so that the spirit of truth may live among us and lead us into all truth, as John says. And to give us the mind of Christ, as the Apostle Paul says. But as the theologian John Calvin so helpfully reminds us, God, in order to communicate with us, gently and kindly talks to us in the baby talk we can understand. And what we do as we sing our praise to him or as we formulate our, our doctrines or all this, what we are doing is essentially baby babbling back. We might say that the doctrine of the Trinity and all of its glorious truth and goodness and fruitfulness in our life, as, all, as true as all of that may be, in the eyes of our triune God, our doctrine may be something like a four-year-old's artwork that you put on your fridge, right? I mean, it's really good given all that you have to work with, right? And where you are in, in life, it's, it's really good. And so God smiles upon us and gives us a hug and we smile back, hopefully delighting more in him than in our artistic excellence. It's not that Christians who believe in the Trinity are simply bad at math. It's that we just don't start with math or logic or any other human tool as we seek to um, know and speak about God. We start with God himself as God makes himself known to us. And at times we find ourselves peering into a mystery we cannot explain. A mystery of God who transcends our plane of existence and the explanatory power of our human tools. And that's why it's helpful to remember that our theology is a map and not a destination. Our hope and our trust isn't in our ability to explain things or to get the right answers. It can't be, or that would be a very fragile hope, wouldn't it? No generation that's come before us has gotten it all right. And we are obviously no different. And that should humble us. And it should make us open-minded seekers rather than closed-minded settlers in the life of faith. And that's why we need a map. Because this triune, transcendent God who calls us to worship him and to commune with him and to serve him in his world by being like him, 
at least in the creaturely ways in which we can bear the image of our creator. That God, he calls us to be human in his world in a particular way. And it's not a stretch to suppose that maybe, just maybe, that way, the way of life that our creator intends for us, isn't the one we would just intuit without some help. So over the past seven weeks, we've been reflecting on the Apostles' Creed and how, like our doctrine of the Trinity, this creed is a kind of map that orients us to the landscape of life with God in God's world. And we've seen how the creed leads us in relating to God as our Father and as our Creator. And we've seen how the creed leads us in relating to Jesus as our Lord as God who became a human being and who willingly chose to join us in the totality of our human experience from birth through a life of suffering to death and even beyond. And we've seen how the creed leads us in relating to God the Holy Spirit and to the community of the Spirit that God has created in Christ and on the day of Pentecost. This community called the church, which is God's one universal body in the earth. And as we conclude our series today, I want us to just very briefly consider a few more important ways this creed maps out for us the path that leads us deeper into life with God in God's world. And the first is this. The creed aims our hope at the day of Christ's return. In the section on Jesus in the middle of the creed, we come across this line, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's what we just read about in our text from Revelation 22, which is actually the very last part of the very last page of the Bible. That's the end of the Bible that we just read. And in that section, Jesus says, see, I am coming soon. And I will repay according to everyone's work. Now, judgment and hope may not immediately strike all of us as two things that necessarily go together, but they, they are. Um, and those among us who have been victims of abuse or injustice understand this in a profound way. Just listen to the responses we've heard this week from Harvey Weinstein's victims as they finally got to see him in handcuffs, being taken into custody after years and years and years of hiding behind this wall of power that had insulated him and protected him from the accusations of the weak. For those who've suffered at the hands of another, there's no hope apart from judgment. And this idea of God's coming to judge the world is something we really see throughout the whole arc of the biblical story. God, as the creator, is rightly the judge of that which he has created. That's a theme we see really from the very earliest pages of the Bible all the way to the very end that we just read. And it's this story, as we see it unfold in the Old Testament, we discover more that, that not only is God the judge of his creation, but that his judgment is just. He isn't one of those judges who's susceptible to bribes. He's also not susceptible to the emotional swings that can make us judge unjustly. He isn't corrupt or swayable the way we are. 
And more than that, God can see into human hearts and he can judge and does judge our secrets and our motives. He's the God who searches and knows his people, as the psalmist says. But he's also this judge who acts on behalf of those who need him. Right? He's the one who judges the cause of the orphan and the widow and the poor and the powerless. The one who is called upon to restore the world to rights. To lift those from being beneath the thumb of oppression. And as we continue reading into the New Testament, what we see is that all of these things come into a clearer focus in Jesus. That it's through him that God judges the world. And it's through Jesus that God judges the hidden things of human beings. It's through Jesus that God is restoring the world to a state of justice and peace. And what we find as we continue to read that story is that it will be the day of Jesus' glorious return when all of that will come to be. It's the day when Jesus returns that God will establish his kingdom of justice and peace in fullness upon the earth. It's on that day that the dead shall be raised and transformed in the twinkling of an eye, the Apostle Paul says. It's on that day that the earth and all its inhabitants shall experience the fullness of life for which we were made. What our creed helps us appreciate is that the future that God promises to us is not some otherworldly hope, right? It's not some otherworldly hope that we'll go to heaven when we die. Rather, it's a very earthy, embodied hope of life on earth here with God and one, one another here, restored, reconciled to God and to one another here. And that's a life that lasts. And what the creed also helps us to appreciate is that what every one of us needs in order to experience the reality of that hope is for Christ to come again as our judge as the judge who will restore life on earth to the justice and peace that God intends. There's no human being alive who has not suffered evil at the hands of another. And we need the just judge to come and set things right, don't we? We can't be that judge. We don't have what it takes. We're also not that good at it. And for all of our outrage and all of our zeal for activism, as good and holy as any of those things may be for any particular cause, none of that can possibly bring about the kind of restoration God promises that will last upon the earth. Only Jesus' return will bring that to fullness, and that's very important for us because that means that our hope rests in him. But at the very same time, the creed helps us recognize that also every single one of us has been part of the problem as well. Right? We've, we've been perpetrators of injustice. We've been the ones who've done harm to others. Every one of us should have some sense of dread when we hear these things said, right? That God will come to judge and that we will be held accountable for what we do. Yes, I am a sufferer at the hands of others, but yes, I am also a sinner 
And so are you. We all are. And what we need, the creed helps us to see what we need, is both the judge who will establish justice on the earth and the Savior who will deliver us from being on the wrong side of it. We need a God who will come in justice and in mercy to lead us into the fullness of life that is to be our hope. And in Jesus, God has done exactly that. Which is why we must be a community that believes in the forgiveness of sins. As we get toward the end of the creed, we come to this sentence in the section about the Holy Spirit that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And really, that is the, this other thing, the second thing I want us to think about that the creed leads us in, is that the creed leads us in becoming a community of radical forgiveness as we prepare for Jesus' return. So this section on the forgiveness of sins was a late addition to the creed. It came in um, a few centuries later than many of the other things that are there. Really, it was in the fourth century that that clause was added. And the reason it was added is because the church went through a really trying time where uh, in a season of persecution under the Romans, many of the, many of the members of the Christian church, including many of its ministers, had succumbed to the temptation to abandon the church in order to save their own necks. And then once that season of persecution lifted, many of them wanted to come back and be restored to life in the church. And that was difficult because these people who wanted to come back were those who had betrayed their fellow brothers and sisters. They were ones who had abandoned them in their most vulnerable moment. And while some of the faithful died because of their faithfulness, these cowards lived and then they wanted to come back. And so it was a real struggle in the church. What are we going to do with these people? Can we restore them? They've broken their vows. They've abandoned us. They've betrayed us. Can they come back? And St. Augustine, one of our, our most notable ancestors and forefathers in the faith, uh, led this movement inside of the church of saying, look, yes, we must restore them. There is no sin anyone can commit that puts them outside the grace of God. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you have done, nothing you are doing, and nothing you will do that is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and grace. And if the church is going to be a community that embodies that reality, that lives by the spirit of that God, we must be a church committed to giving and receiving radical forgiveness of sins. The only sin that really and truly is a barrier between the sinner and God and the sinner and God's people is that of unrepentance. Our unwillingness to confess, our unwillingness to turn, our unwillingness to receive forgiveness, our unwillingness to be healed, our unwillingness to be changed and to live differently. Forgiveness of sins, radical forgiveness of sins is the commitment and calling of the church. And that is both incredibly beautiful and incredibly painful. Because if you've ever had to receive forgiveness, real forgiveness, 
or if you've ever had to grant forgiveness, real forgiveness, you know how costly that process is. Why don't we experience it? For some of us, it's our pride. We don't think we need it. We think we're pretty good. And so we don't actually recognize the ways in which we've harmed others. We don't recognize the depth of our need to be known and restored. For others, it's our shame. We can't bear to confess our sin because we actually can't believe that it would be met with forgiveness. So we hide. We fester in it. There are all kinds of reasons that we don't experience forgiveness. But in that same passage that Jesus says, I'm coming soon and I will repay everyone for their work. He also says, the spirit and the bride say come. And let everyone who hears say come. And let everyone who is thirsty come and let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift. Our creed leads us in this way of life and hope. And the scriptures lead us in this way of life and hope that overcomes our pride and that overcomes our shame through the cross of Christ and through the spirit of power. And we're called in this moment of being the body of Christ, we're called into this life of receiving forgiveness, of, forgiving, of giving forgiveness, and of experiencing the fullness of that which God intends for his people to be restored. And lastly, just finish with this. I think it's important that we remember that our creed concludes with the word, Amen. It concludes with the word, Amen, reminding us that the map that we need and the map we are given is most basically a prayer. More than it is an explanation of things, it is a prayer, and that's significant. Because six weeks ago, when we began this series on the Apostles' Creed, we started by reflecting on this opening phrase, I believe. And what we saw is that faith, at least according to Jesus and the biblical authors, is not as much about cognitive belief as it is about trust. Faith in Christ is first and foremost not about believing in all the right things, but about entrusting our whole selves to the true and living God, to Jesus, to his care and his guidance, to his provision and intercession, to his authority and to his saving grace. It's this daring journey of receiving and resting on him alone and not on what we do and not on what we can protect ourselves from not on what we can achieve for ourselves. And of course, our beliefs play a significant role in that trust, but it's a supporting role. The lead role, the main event, is trust. Which reminds me of the story of the great Blondin. Does anybody know who the great Blondin is? He's the tightrope walker that went over the Niagara Falls like 100 years ago. Um, and the great Blondin was famous for doing, I mean, he was crazy. He put this tightrope over the, over the falls, and he'd walk back and forth. I mean, just like 
There's no net. There's nothing beneath. I mean, he's just crazy, you know, and he's doing all this stuff. And there are all these people gathered on the side basically saying, like, you know, go, do your, you know, do your stuff. And, and he's saying, like, do you think I can do it blindfolded? And they're like, yeah, we can do it blindfolded. And he, yeah, yeah, do you think I can do it on one foot? Yeah, you can do it on one foot. And everybody's all in, right? Everybody's all cheering. He goes, do you think I can do it with somebody on my back? And they're like, yes, you can do it with somebody on your back. And he goes, okay, who volunteers? Nobody. Everybody believed he could do it. Nobody was willing to trust him that he could do it. The life of faith to which God calls us is not primarily a life of belief. Belief's good, that's part of it. But it's a life of trust. And that is the risky, daring journey whose reward is life as God intends it in the world. That's the risky, daring journey that when we dare to take it and rest on Christ alone and put our hopes and our dreams into his hands and to put our future into his hands and our priorities and our decisions and the way we relate to our money and the way we relate to our neighbors and the way we enter into or or out of our relationships, when we put all that in his hands and let him lead us deeper into life in the world with him, That life of trust is what leads us into really the experience of knowing God as he's made us to know him. And that is the kind of life of trust that makes us trees of life in the world from whom those around us can come and taste and see that the Lord is good and get a little taste of this life that is theirs in Christ. And so the question for each of us as we come to the end of this series on the creed, our map, and we encounter this God who makes himself known to us in Jesus and the Spirit, the question is just simply, will you trust him? Will you get out of your head and out of your settledness? And will you actually dare to take the risky journey of life with God in God's world, wherever that may lead you? Because that is the path of life. May we seek him all the days of our lives as we await that day when Christ returns. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our God, we give you thanks and we give you praise as we consider the way in which you have loved us in Christ, the way in which you love us today in Jesus, and by the indwelling Spirit who cries out from within us, Abba, Father. We recognize that you are a mystery to us. We don't get you. And we don't get what life in the world is always all about. But we ask that you would give us grace to trust you. And that with Jesus and with your spirit, Father, that you would remake us into a people who live deeply in union and communion with you who sink our roots deeply into your streams of living water and bring forth the fruit of your spirit in our very life, that we may become trees of life in your world, a gift as you are a gift to us. Would you do this work within us, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord and Savior, in whose spirit we pray to you, our Father and our God. Amen.